KHAN is supported in part by Little Red Hen Bakery, located at 302 G Street in downtown Salida. Little Red Hen specializes in hometown fresh-baked bread, bagels, and treats, all made with organic and local ingredients. A full menu, including the wood-fired oven schedule and daily specials, can be found on their Facebook page at Little Red Hen Salida. K-Hen and Little Red Hen, just two hometown chickens working to keep Salida, Salida. K-Hen is supported in part by Hilltop Broadband. Hilltop Broadband for residential and business wireless internet service. Servicing Salida and Poncha Springs in Chaffee County, as well as areas in Fremont County, Custer County, and more. To experience the Hilltop difference and request new customer information, email info at hilltop-broadband.com or call toll-free 877-783-2889. Welcome, friends, to another edition of On the Rails with me, your host, Forrest Whitman, here at KHEN 106.9 on your FM dial and all the time as as podcasts. Uh, We are settling back into the old caboose. Our engineer, Rick White, is up in the very front pulling the train along, and uh, there are plenty of comfortable seats here in the caboose. If you really want to get a view, climb up into the angel seat up in the cupola there, and you can... You can look out the window and watch the and watch the red rocks uh, slip by. Anyway, so welcome. Our interview today is with Randall Eric Stair, otherwise called Randy. We call him Randy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he's got some uh, some interesting railroad uh, discussion and took quite a trip. He wants to tell us about. And also, uh, if and I think we'll have time a little bit later to talk a little more about just train travel in general. And um, so, Randy, welcome to On the Rails. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Very nice to have you. And Randy, I, I want to tell the uh, out of town or the the streaming listeners that uh, Randy is a. Uh, is a a resident of Salida here. And um, I think it's important for our, our, your listeners for us to know that. Nice to have you. Yes. And and we just got a note here from a a listener in Canyon city. And that is funny. You should bring that up because he says um, the last time we didn't say where they were from. So Ah. he, he, he wondered if, are they from Canyon city? no, (laughs) We're from Salida. Anyway, so, Randy, so you took quite an interesting cross-country trip as the sort of a hobo, or were you kind of a hobo, or were you just, how did how'd you get into this trip, anyway? A uh, little bit of background. is it's, It was the summer of 1966. I was 18 years old and living in Denver, <clears throat> but through the father of an old girlfriend, I got a job with the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad in Salt Lake City. I was labeled a telegraph lineman, but I spent most of the summer digging holes and trenches. But we lived in Salt Lake City, worked there. Weekends, we'd use our railroad pass to ride the train back to Denver to be with our sweethearts and family. Uh, 
today. At age 18, I was I was a good kid. I didn't give my parents any uh, problems. Uh, had good grades. Had no run-ins with the law. And I was working in Salt Lake City, and I realized that I was leading. I, I was leading a boring life. That mm -hmm. I was. You I were leading a boring life. Yes. I, well, I everybody remember. else was getting arrested, and you were just a good kid. <laughs> yeah, the Vietnam good War. Good for you. Thing. I was a good kid. I stayed out of trouble, but I. I actually had this fear that I would grow up and not have any good stories to tell my grandchildren. So I, working on the railroad around the Salt Lake City Yards, I observed the hobos that came and went. I observed where they hung out and where they picked up their trains. And I decided that I was going to hop a freight from Salt Lake to Denver. So uh -huh. one, one Friday afternoon... I, I gathered my stuff, a bag and a liquor bottle for the canteen and tried to put on the hobo appearance, which <laughs> was hard at the time. But I one after, Friday afternoon, I went down to the rail yard after, after work was over. Rather than catch the train, the passenger train to Denver, I was going to hop a freight. Uh, a DNRG employee had directed me to where the next train to Denver was going to form up. I went to that spot and sat there between two rows of boxcars waiting. A stranger came up and joined me, but we didn't exchange names or information or really talk very much at all. And we sat there and waited for the train to form. We noticed that there were a fair amount of activity around the, the yard and uh, they were law enforcement folks, cops and oh, sheriff's deputies. These are so what we used to call the the cinder dicks. They were railroad detectives and they would come around and, but oh boy, so you saw some of them around. Well, I didn't see any railroad detectives per se. In fact, one of the striking things about what the reaction of the DNRG to the hobos was that they were indifferent to them. And in fact, there was a DNRG employee that directed me where to go for to meet the train that was forming up. Uh, but these were law enforcement people and I was sitting with this, uh, this stranger, this first stranger. And I looked under the boxcar behind me and saw these two legs with a stripe down the seam and the barrel of a shotgun. And this Whoa. deputy sheriff went down to the end of the boxcars, came to, to the south of us and came back, coming north to us. He got about 40 or 50 feet from us and leveled his shotgun at us, told us to lean up against the boxcars. I don't know if you've ever, ever had somebody level a gun at you or point a gun at you, but scary. when it happens, the barrel of the gun looks like it's six inches in diameter. It is really awesome. Well, we leaned up and he, and others approached and they asked us questions and uh, didn't, without much interest. It turned out they were chasing a uh, escaped prisoner from Provo prison oh. and i wasn't oh. an escape prisoner and the stranger that was with me wasn't so they just let us go and so we waited there until uh the, the train formed up well now let's back up a little bit now they asked you these questions and of course we you know the part of the mythology about railroads is that the uh, cinder dicks would uh, throw all the hobos off the train and yet, and any real, I worked for four railroads. We, uh, we never bothered the, the hobos much, and they didn't bother us at all. And um, so a lot of these movies, like um, 
oh, I don't know, Emperor of the North. Emperor of the North, which yeah. Is, which is a well-known, where they're, they're out there shooting hobos. And maybe that happened somewhere, but I certainly never saw anything like that. Mostly, once in a while, we'd say, why would these people ever want to do what they're doing? But that's neither here nor there. Well, and, I came uh, to that conclusion at the end of my adventure. But the, the, we found an empty boxcar when the train formed up that had some cardboard sheets in it from old boxes or whatever. And the stranger stayed behind because his buddy was getting him some liquor or so, some such thing. So I left uh, Salt Lake City alone in a boxcar headed towards Provo and then Grand Junction. Um, what I found out quickly was an empty boxcar vibrates a lot. <laughs> and when it hits the the resonant frequency, it vibrates a whole lot, such that you couldn't sit on the floor of the boxcar because the pounding of the floor on your butt oh. would make life uncomfortable, and you'd feel it all up your spine. If you stood with your knees locked, you'd feel the vibration all up into your head. It was uncomfortable. So I spend most of the time from, from Salt Lake to Grand Junction uh, standing with my knees bent, absorbing the vibration of the boxcar. It was oh, not geez. not pleasant way to travel. When it, when it got off the resonant frequency, it wasn't so bad. You could sit for a little while. But when it hit the resonant frequency, it was really uncomfortable. Well, about Provo, some other guys hopped in the boxcar with me. And again, we had no exchange of information, names, chit-chat, nothing at all. Um, at, at, at Grand Junction, which now is dark, uh, the, we went into the rail yards. I remember the patterns of the lights, the yard lights on the walls of the boxcar as the boxcar came into the, into the yard. It was really quite, quite stunning. But the train broke up. So now I was in Grand Junction, and I had to find out where the next train to Denver was. Again, it was a DNRG employee that told me where to go. So I stood there <clears throat> waiting for the train to, to form up. And as it formed up, it formed up with no boxcars. It was piggyback cars, <laughs> semi-trailers on, piggyback the back, cars. On, a, on a flat car. <coughs> and I scrounged oh. up some, some um, cardboard to use as a windbreak because I was sitting behind the wheels of the trailer and we'd lean up against the, the cardboard. A couple other people jumped on the uh, flat car too, and again there was no exchange of information. There was no niceties. There was no nothing but sort of distance. The we I don't remember a whole lot about the travel from Grand Junction to Dawn, probably because it was dark. There wasn't much to see, and or there's much to see, but there wasn't light. And it was it was uh, I may have drifted off to sleep or drowsed, but I remember waking up in the morning with the dawn. And we were stopped in the Colorado River Canyon near Hot Sulphur Springs. And I marveled at the scenery because I was looking at terrain that you'd only see if you rode on a passenger train or raft or hiked into it. Uh, there was no road in there. So it was really quite beautiful country. Um, well, you might see it from a passenger train, uh, would you think, uh, Randy? Yeah. It, yeah. It, I would think you might. Yeah. You would. But we, I didn't see any that day. Um, it was beautiful countryside. And finally, the train got ro got rolling again, and we went across North Park, sitting on the under the flatbed, under the 
trailer with the cardboard windshields coming to the Moffat Tunnel. Now, Moffat Tunnel kind of scared me because it's a long tunnel. I think it's six miles long. Yes, it is. It's uh, yeah. the longest, yeah, the longest. I was concerned about miles. fumes because uh, it was diesel fumes, of course. So I had brought along a kerchief and I had put a wet kerchief over my nose and mouth and lay down on the, on the flat car to try just to minimize my respiration as much as possible. What I remember most about the Moffat Tunnel is that it's dark, noisy, and it's these greasy diesel fumes are oh, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. condition of the, of the atmosphere. So it was a long, it was a long ride, six miles through that tunnel. We came out the other side to a beautiful uh, front range terrain and beautiful morning. Uh, and the ride into Denver was uneventful. The, the train uh, stopped at the north end of the rail yards in Denver and uh, broke up there. So I got off with my bag of gear and hoofed it to a motel on Colfax where my sister happened to be working as a as, at a motel so I could borrow her car and drive to my home. What was striking about that interaction was that when I called out to her, at the motel, she looked down and didn't recognize me. Oh, didn't recognize you at all. This is your sister. This is my sister. She didn't recognize well, me because I was my face was besmudged with diesel fumes and oil. as <laughs> dirty well, and looked like a hobo. My hair was a mess, and she didn't exchange. She didn't recognize me. And finally, I called out to her, and she recognized me. And gave me a, a keys to the car. I went home, and that oh, was a, the end of my adventure, hopping the freight from Salt Lake to Denver. But I have some general observations, which you've pointed out to already, which is that hop, hopping a freight is a miserable way to travel. It is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It is unreliable. It is cold. It is dirty. It is filthy. It is just a terrible way to travel. It was a great adventure. But I wouldn't recommend anybody do it. It's cheap, though. It is cheap. <laughs> it's it is cheap. cheap. Oh. Well, Rick, have you have you thought about that? Doing something like that? Um, yes, in the past I have, and I have a, a couple stories I'd like to share in the next section of this show. Um, but I want to go back to uh, something Randy was talking about in the piggyback cars. And this is just general information for the listeners. My father worked for the Santa Fe. He was, uh, he, he kind of watched the piggyback operation grow. And um, there's two terms in their four letter, four, four letter abbreviations. And Forrest knows these, T-O-F-C and C-O-F-C. Yeah. Yeah. And TOFC stands for trailer on flat car right. and COFC stands for container on flat car. Anyway, just a little, little info for our uh, listeners. And when you got your switch list, if you had either of those, you re you realized you had to be very careful because you were, you were very gently trying to count the number of cars up from where you were and pull those by, then pull that switch over, then be in good communication with your your engineer 
so that you could very gently move those back. Because if you ever knocked one of those things over, there was hell to play. <laughs> there, would, there would be investigations. There would be people. I never heard of anybody getting, nobody ever gets fired on the railroad. I don't think. I never, I don't know what you'd have to do to get fired. But uh, certainly uh, uh, people get, you know, they can't work for a week, that kind of thing. And, and that apparently, though I always thought those things were pretty well secured especially those trailers but apparently not apparently you you can you can knock them off there wow. <laughs> if you if you kick those cars down hey do yeah. you do you know for us whether they like the air-conditioned cars the uh, freezer cars or whatever refrigerator cars trucks are those put on those uh uh rail cars running do they do that oh well the refrigerated trucks Certainly used to be. I don't know. I'm not au courant. You like that? That was a French phrase for what the heck is going on now. <laughs> anyway, I um, certainly in those days. Oh yeah, they they would keep running. I'll be. They darn. would be. Yeah, they would run. But uh, there weren't very many of them. I don't know how popular that ever really was. I think I think if they really wanted to move something and keep it really frozen. I have an idea they probably put it onto the highways. Oh, I see. I, I think so, yeah. 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 Well, it seems... And that would be interesting to find out about, wouldn't it? Yes. You know? It seems like the engineer and the conductor have stole the show from our guest. And remember, we have Mr. Yes. Randy Herrick-Stair sitting with us? And we're very excited to have Randy Herrick-Stair with us for two or three reasons. Another reason is that he is a practicing lawyer. He knows all about the law. And have you ever handled, Randy, have you ever had talked to many railroad lawyers about uh, how they do their business and stuff? No, the the institutional lawyers, the ones that represent the, the, the trains and the regulatory side is all kind of a dull practice. My practice was a tort practice, personal injury litigation mostly. Yeah. But I, I'd add just a little bit of tidbits about my experience with the railroad. My first yeah. summer was in 66 in Salt Lake City, where we mostly spent our time rewiring the speaker system in the yard. That's why I was mostly digging holes and trenches. The second summer I worked for the railroad, I was part of a crew that moved the rail, the railroad tracks at Glenwood Springs from Glenwood Springs West, seven miles. They moved the railroad tracks to the south side of the Colorado River in order to make room for I-70. Wow. And I spent the second summer working for the railroad as a telegraph lineman. Climbed a lot more poles that summer. And then the third summer was 1968. I lived in Salida. Can't remember where in Salida I lived. In a trailer court somewhere. But the depot was down in place. And we'd go down there every morning. We were maintaining the pole line, telegraph pole line. Not the signal pole line. The telegraph pole line from Canyon City to to uh, Buena Vista, and we'd gather at the depot in the morning, ride the, the putt putt, two two stroke cars up and down the rail yard to find pole the, the telegraph poles that needed to be stumped, dig a hole next to the pole, and put a short pole in and band them together. Did a lot of digging, dug along. We used to figure out how many hundred dollars it cost the railroad to dig a hole six feet deep in a cobble field. Wow. 
spent well, an afternoon in the Royal Gorge trying to keep the gnats out of my ears and dig a hole. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget that. When you say stumped, I've never understood quite why they do, why they do that. They put a small pole next to the big pole. Yeah, they take a they take a they usually a 30, 30 foot, 35 foot pole. And when they get aged, they begin to deteriorate. And if they're in risk of falling down, you dig a hole next to the existing telegraph pole and you put in a stump that's about 12 feet long, 10, 12 feet. And that's good, good wood. And then you band the stump together to the old pole and keep it to reinforce it so it doesn't fall over. I'll be darned. Well, climbing, were you afraid of heights? I mean, there you no. are. We, no. There's a trick to climbing a telegraph pole with hooks on your feet. And that's that you keep your knees away from the pole. Because if you bring your knees in, you pry the hooks out of the, out of the wood and then you burn the pole. Mm. Ah, Not good. Not good at all. Not good. Well, that's interesting. Now, what kind of, you had what, uh, resistors at the top? Do you, did you have, uh, they must have had something to keep those wires from being in. A lot of glass insulators up there. We replaced a lot of them. We broke some, some of them. But that's mostly what we did up there. The, the maintenance didn't involve a whole lot of glass because it was mostly on the ground. And the, the telegraph system was a low voltage system. I actually spent one afternoon sitting on two signal wires doing maintenance work on the telegraph line, only to find out that the signal wires were high voltage and we'd been sitting on them all afternoon. Yeah. Oh, my God. My foreman uh, was not happy about that. No. No. Hey, let, me, let me ask this question along the uh, telegraph line and stuff, Randy. Um when wires run between those glass insulators, does the wire wrap that glass insulator or does it, how, how, does, how is that connection made? There's an insulator and the, the insulator has a groove at the top. The wire, the telegraph wire sits in the groove and then you get a short length of wire about a foot long that you tie and cross and wrap around the insulator. I see, so the telegraph wire remains straight yeah, and it's attached with. Okay, I'm curious. <laughs> and in fact, there's one afternoon where one guy was had was tasked with the job of taking the slack out of the telegraph wires, and he was lazy, so he went to the end of the series of four or five spans that he needed to tighten up, and put lots of pull with his come along, pulled it up, pulled out lots of tension, so much so that he bent to the cross arms. <laughs> Yeah. Oh no. In other words, there's enough friction in between the telegraph oh. wire and the insulators and insulated the ties that he couldn't bring the slack out of the out of the wires. And then he ended up just bending the, the cross beam. My gosh. So then he had to well replace the whole thing. Wow. Well, this is fascinating. You know, we don't usually have the time to to, to really get into the detail. I mean, it's the stuff we see from now. Telegraph. Tell me about Telegraph. Uh, telegraph would have been only very recently that uh, taken out. I doubt there's any Telegraph anymore, is there? Well, most of the pole line's missing now. Uh, as I drive up and down the canyon, I see short sections of it where the poles are still, sit, still still up. 
but most of the poles have been removed. I don't know why they went to the trouble of removing them because I assume they cut them off and they're, therefore they're short. Yeah, I, uh, we assume that. And of course, at that time, uh, gosh, at that time that everything was, everything was uh, the telegrapher. I mean, boy, the telegrapher, they were fast. They could give you your orders fast. They gave them on little, little kind of duplicate slips. And so that would be everything on there. They would say there's, there's loose gravel at milepost such and such. Or they'd say um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of mountain sheep are sitting on the track at so-and-so. So as you got into that area, you had an idea what was happening. And those telegraphers, those telegraphers were really fast. I mean, they, they could read those messages, uh, type out your message with the other hand. Uh, I wonder... That that art. I wonder if that art is even still around. I don't know. One other interesting tidbit about it that I learned mostly in uh, the year '67 in Glenwood Springs is that the price of copper rose, and so much so that uh, the lines were being vandalized by vandals. They would cut down the copper wires with tree trimmers and stuff, and then sell it for salvage. So some of our maintenance was to repair the. Damage that vandals were damaged. Doing. Yeah. Huh. How much money would they get for a length of copper wire? You can't think it'd be a lot, but maybe if the price was high enough. It was high. I don't remember the numbers anymore, but it was enough that people went to the trouble of cutting down wires. Wow. Huh. And of course, in the old days, when they a wire would go down like that, you'd get a red board. Every signal would give you a red board, probably all the way from Denver to, I don't know, not to Salt Lake, but uh, I wonder if that still would be the case with radio and all. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Of course, radio dispatching, thats that was uh, something else. So I tell you what, I remember as a, <laughs> remember standing there next to a, next to a switch for a long time trying to get a hold of the dispatcher on the radio, finally got a hold of him, looked over there, and it, he'd already turned the switch. So um, I thought, oh, okay, great, we can go ahead. And it, just at that point, just as I was getting my lantern up, of course, it's always dark and cold, but I was just getting my lantern up to do the big round, you know, the round signal for for a backup. I was, and he'd already toot it off, toot, toot. He's, you know, he's he's getting ready. He's going to back up. The damn, the excuse me, the darn dispatcher pulled at something or another, and the, and it relined, so it was back relined for the main line. So the problem with human communication by voice is is just that you 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 misunderstand each other. Whereas the old thing where you had to have a piece of paper in your hand, uh, I always thought was. A lot more, well, it, it, you felt better. You had that piece of paper saying, this is what I'm going to do. Then you, you know, I know maybe, maybe that partly was just me. But uh, anyway. Let me uh, step in here for just a second. We, we're going to have to close out this. But nowadays, they would do that by text message, Forrest. Would they? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose they would. Oh, my gosh. That's assuming you're. Your texting was was good. We've got to wrap up. We this 
we have been really excited to have, very excited to have uh, Randall, uh, Randy, uh, Eric Stair with us on the show today, talking about some of his railroad experiences. And we're going to talk some more. This We've got another segment coming up where we can not only talk about a lot of this railroad history, but also maybe do some prognosis about the future. So we're going to hear the sound of the horn. And when we do, we're going to end this segment with a great big highball. So breathe in and out. Practice your highball. Breathe in. Highball. 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 Cahen is sponsored in part by Soulcraft Brewing, Salida's hometown brewery, offering a large selection of traditional and seasonal craft beers. Their spacious patio features cozy fire pit tables for outdoor warmth on chilly days. Fresh food is served daily at the Soul Shack food truck, featuring snacks like wings and pretzels, and full meals like sandwiches, burgers, and a delicious brunch on Sunday. Soulcraft is open daily for happy hour, lunch, and dinner.